I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Downtown Nashville in the 1950s and 60s was a bustling shopping district, but not everyone got to enjoy all that downtown had to offer. That's because, of course, Nashville's lunch counters were segregated. But in 1960, that started to change. A few times a month, we take you into the city with us to show you an ordinary street corner, a vacant grocery store, the side of an office building. Now, I know what you're thinking. That doesn't sound very exciting. Our goal is to take you back in time, to bring our history to life and to show you what our city has been. Today, in a special episode, we're dropping a pin at 221 Representative John Lewis Way, the longtime home of the Woolworth Department Store. It's a place that would become famous as one of the locations where Nashville students staged the city's first sit-ins. To understand why the students chose this location, you have to understand that back in the mid-1900s, there weren't malls or big box stores. So Woolworth and stores like it were the places to go to shop and grab a little bite to eat at the lunch counters. We'll let our senior producer, Steve Farouche, take it from here. As a 12-year-old, Reverend Marguerite Smithson remembers going downtown with her mother, Mama Body, as she was known around North Nashville. We always wanted to say, Mom, we want to go in and eat in there at the counter. And she had such a sad look on her face, but yet a determined look. She says, no, baby, we can't go in there. We can't eat in there. We'll get something to eat when we get home. Now, Linda Wynn's family did go inside. One could go in and spend their money for goods, but you could not spend your money for a service. And certainly being able to partake of a meal or fountain drink was a service. Mm. Uh, so that was the, the irony of the uh, whole thing. You know, your money's good enough for one part of the store, but not good enough to uh, sit at the welcome table, if you will. Welcome table one of these days. Hallelujah. I'm going to sit at the welcome It was during this very hour in 1960 that African-American students from Fisk, American Baptist College, and Tennessee A&I, as TSU was known then, decided to challenge this norm. They walked into Woolworth, along with Crest and McClellans, sat down at the lunch counters, and demanded to be served just like their white counterparts. Many were jeered and beaten. It was there at Woolworth that civil rights activist John Lewis was arrested for the first time on the street that now, six decades later, bears his name. As desegregation efforts intensified, black Nashvillians started boycotting the downtown stores altogether. By May, six of the downtown lunch counters were open to anyone. It was a win for civil rights, even if it was only a fraction of the city's businesses. Still, being allowed is not the same as being welcome. And as much as Marguerite Smithson had longed to eat at the Woolworth lunch counter, she didn't end up going after all. You know what? I never did. I really never did. It, it was odd. I just didn't have the desire to go in there. I really didn't. <laughs> now, there are some people who really did. They rushed to go in, but I never did. I think it was part of it was I never forgot the look on my mom's face that she was trying to give us the best that she could, and she could not do that one simple request, go into Woolworths and eat. 
I'm gonna sit at the welcome table one of these days. The sit-ins were really only the beginning of the fight for equality in Nashville, and this building will forever be synonymous with that struggle, even if that history became less and less visible as the years went on. After World War shut down in 1993, Dollar General eventually moved in, and it looked like a Dollar General. After that, the building sat empty for years, until Tom Morales came along. It was in really bad repair. Tom is something of a serial restaurateur. His company revamped the Loveless Cafe and Acme Feed and Seed. And Tom had a plan. He wanted to resurface this history and put it on display in a new restaurant called Woolworth on 5th. We kind of crawled through every space in there trying to figure out how we could bring it back to the day that John Lewis was arrested. And I mean, we even found uh, white-only bathroom signs. And I mean, it, it was uh, a chilling uh, discovery walk through that building. His company spent about $2 million meticulously recreating the lunch counter and the period-specific feel of the space, using photographs from the Nashville Public Library as reference. They even found original Woolworth stools from the 1960s on eBay. It was a huge endeavor, but preserving that history was important to Tom. I spent most of my adult life trying to save history, you know, in uh, buildings in Nashville that I saw as a child that were, that were significant. And the Woolworth building was certainly one. But even after all of that, Woolworth on 5th closed down after only two years, just before the pandemic hit. Shortly after that, the building made the yearly Nashville 9 list of endangered properties. Brian Mansfield with Historic Nashville, Inc. says that wasn't because the building itself was in danger, but that the history could be. Historically, the, the most important thing that happens in that building happens really in the space of about one year. In the grand scheme of things, that's less than a hundredth of the time this building has been standing. But that year, 1960, is one of the most transformational moments in this city's history. For whoever the next owners would be, Historic Nashville suggested they bring in a trained preservationist. The last thing that you want to do is stick a bunch of historic items into a window front display because the sunlight will bleach those things out and then you, you destroy them even while you're trying to show the historical significance. I mean, that's, that's one of the dangers that, that well-intentioned people with a passion for history can, um, they, it's a mistake they can make if they come in without the training and preservation. So the new owners would be challenged from the very start to do right by this space. I'm standing outside of the old Woolworth building with Joe Bravo. He's the VP of operations for the newest iteration, a theater. And right here is exactly what Brian Mansfield says shouldn't be here. Two original stools from the original lunch counter in a window display. Well, when we came in, we were using it to be a theater, but we wanted it to at least do some kind of a tribute to the lunch counter and the sit-in. So what we did was, is we did a recreation of the lunch counter. Now, these two seats are the actual seats that were in the lunch counter. 
The display includes an old Woolworth sign and a trench coat similar to one John Lewis wore hangs on one of the stools. Uh, you want to walk inside? Yeah, absolutely. After you. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> we weren't in the, in the business of, of creating a historical, uh, a historical place of interest. That was not in our business plan. But when you take a business, a, a, a building like this, you then have a responsibility to, to cultivate that history. And, you know, my goal is to make sure that these stories keep being told. The remaining artifacts, like the original wood railing, help ground these stories. And Joe has found what he believes to be an old whites-only water fountain that he hopes to restore. There's also the original white tile backsplash from the lunch counter on the second floor, still intact, with a large cornucopia design every few feet. So the lunch counters ran from about right here all the way down. And this is the backsplash, and you can see there's menu boards and whatnot here. But this was one of the original items, and we wanted to preserve it. And even though it's been beat to hell, we wanted to make sure that when people walk by here, they could see it. So we'll be adding some plaques. At the far end of the counter, Joe stops. This spot is something you might recognize from the documentary John Lewis, Good Trouble. Right here, in that video, you can line up the corner of the wall. You can line up... Um, the railing and whatnot, and you can see it was John Lewis was here with one of his compatriots, and they were getting beaten right here. When I watched that, it gave me chills because I walk through here every day. So Joe is certainly trying to preserve the history, but the Woolworth Theater has also made changes. Down on the main floor, there used to be another lunch counter. This is where Tom Morales and his team had built the replica counter that was the centerpiece of the Woolworth on Fifth restaurant. It was not where the original lunch counter was. It was about a foot and a half further out. There was another wall there. So, and it, it really needed to be ripped out. We had to redo it. That choice caught Tom's attention. I called Raising Hell when they started ripping out stuff. And then they're saying on Facebook, they're not ripping it out. And we go into the alley and there's a million dollars worth of work laying in the back alley in dumpsters. The idea that we would meticulously restore that building to as it once was, as it was the day John Lewis was arrested there, and then the total disregard coming in after us and uh, just ripping out for no good reason that I can see, other than it made it easier to build a stage, maybe. That's not the only concern. Last year, the Woolworth Theater came under scrutiny when they hosted a private screening of Candace Owens' film, The Greatest Lie Ever Sold, George Floyd and the Rise of BLM. The event was sponsored by the conservative media company, The Daily Wire. Its co-founder, Ben Shapiro, has argued, among other falsehoods, that systemic racism does not exist. Attendees at the event that night included Kid Rock and the rapper Ye, who had recently made headlines for a series of anti-Semitic comments. Having an event like that, in a place like this, with such a strong tie to the civil rights movement and its current iterations, seemed a bridge too far for many. But Joe Bravo doesn't exactly see it that way. Well, I, I, I don't really comment on private events. The one thing I will say is this is an inclusive space. There are going to be people that we agree with, and there are going to be people that we disagree with. But one of the things is, is, is in being in an inclusive space, that means you're welcoming to everyone. This has not always been a place that was welcoming to everyone. And changing that did not come 
without struggle. So whatever business, Prince 221 represented of John Lewis Way on its business cards. The old Woolworth building will forever be connected to what happened here in 1960. Linda Wynn from the Tennessee Historic Commission says it's vital we don't forget. And I would say yes, that that history of that building still remains ever present, uh, certainly in the memory of those of us who were here. Um, unless we keep the history and the narrative of that story alive, it becomes lost on uh, the younger generation. And, and I fear with, if I dare go here, the banning of African-American history. The generation coming after this one will know absolutely nothing. Coming up after the break, we'll meet two of the African-American students who sat down at those segregated lunch counters back in 1960 and reflect on what life in Nashville was like back then. Stay with us. This is Nashville. Kalona, and this is Nashville. Back in the mid-1900s, sitting down at a lunch counter while black was incredibly risky, but that didn't stop a group of Nashville students and their allies. On a February day in 1960, these students kicked off Nashville's sit-ins, a movement which would draw attention to the segregation of Nashville businesses and eventually help bring about change. My next guest was one of those students, King Hollins. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. How did you get involved with the civil rights movement? Well, uh, <clears throat> I was a uh, student at Fisk uh, University, a freshman, uh, and uh, uh, I was uh, a part of the, uh, the, uh, the uh, student uh, International Student Center, uh, and uh, since I was a Nashvilleian that uh, stayed on campus, I had an opportunity to interact on a regular basis with uh, the Fisk uh, student body, uh, as well as uh, have continuing to keep my uh, association with the rest of uh, Nashville, city of Nashville. Uh, I had been uh, exposed to some of the early training efforts by uh, the uh, school Jim Jim Lawson and some of the, some of those people uh, that were uh, teaching nonviolence uh, and uh, and exploring the opportunities uh, for nonviolent movement in Nashville and as a result of that uh, I attended. Uh, a camp for uh, nonviolent training in Mount Eagle, Tennessee, uh, with the uh, Miles Horton, uh, who was a labor activist, and uh, uh, and this, the school there was one of the training grounds for uh, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. Mm -hmm. 
So as a result of uh, that movement and exposure, uh, I was uh, uh, involved in the early stages of, of the movement. So on February 13th, 1960, you decided to march to the Woolworth lunch counter. What happened when you got there? <laughs> well, uh, uh, there was the usual uh, heckling. Uh, uh, of course, a lot of things happened b- before we got in because as you walk down the street, the crowds were there. They were heckling uh, and uh, making uh, all kinds of threats, uh, etc., uh, but uh, we would just uh, continue to, to maintain our posture uh, and walk in. But once we got in the counters and sat down, uh, then there would, the heckling would continue. Uh, some people, depending on the makeup of the crowd at the time, uh, would be uh, heckled or touched or things would be, hit. Uh, uh, I was fortunate in that, that uh, none of that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly to uh, people uh, alongside me and in, in the group, we were all pretty much the object of derision uh, from the crowd. How did you deal with that? Well, you would you would maintain your posture, keep your uh, focus uh, on uh, uh, things at hand, uh, and and w- recognize what was there. Part of the uh, uh, the beauty of the training was that uh, it helped us to not encounter unexpected uh, uh, activities, or to to already have in our minds a reaction to uh, uh, events that would occur. Uh, so, and as well as uh, the philosophy uh, behind the movement. Uh, and the support that we had from from the rest of us, that everyone was focused and, and pretty much of one mind, mm. made, makes a big difference uh, when you get into a situation and you, you don't know what to expect or the unexpected occurs and you don't know how to react. So the, the training was critical, uh, a part uh, of the movement. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking this hour about the lunch counter sit-ins that started in 1960 in downtown Nashville. Now, I'd like to introduce another student who took part in that movement, Frankie Henry. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Now, Frankie, I understand that you did not take part in the training like King did. Tell us about how you found the sit-ins movement. Yes, I was a freshman at Tennessee State University. At that time, we, we were seeing A&I State University. I was a physical education major, and I wanted to be a pepperette. Mm-hmm. There was a tap dancing team, and you tapped during the halftime of the basketball games. I lived in South Nashville, so... My father thought I would be in the library at that time after my classes, but I was trying to enter into the tapping team, so I would tap, and when the uh, classes were over, I would tie my tap shoes in a bow and throw them across my shoulder, go in front of King's Hall and catch the Jefferson Street bus 
because I lived across town in South Nashville. Mm -hmm. And they had a shelter up on 6th Avenue. And I would take my transfer. And we got to the shelter, and I hid my books in my arms and my tap shoes over my shoulder. And this young white lady met me coming off the bus and said, are you a college student? I said, yes. Mm. She said, will you walk with me for a while? And I'm saying to myself, what does this white woman want with me? Mm. And she said, please. And I said, what's up? She said, this is the first day of the sittings. And um, I don't have anybody to go in Cain's Loans with me. And I want you to join up with me. So we walked through the arcade and down Fifth Avenue. The first place I looked in was Woolworth. And I saw all black students sitting at the counters. And I said, oh, they're going to get in trouble. We can't do this because I didn't know anything about the city movements. Mm-hmm. And uh, we passed McClellan's. Students were sitting at the counters, Cresses, and students were sitting at the counters. She said, Frankie, you have on-the-job training. I said, we've been meeting at Kelly Miller's church, and she was talking about the nonviolent movement that King Holland referred to. Mm-hmm. She said, I don't have anyone to go to Kane Sloan's with me, will you go? So I said to myself, now, if a white girl can put her life on the land for a colored girl like me, surely I will go. Mm. So I joined up, and I went to Kane Sloan's with her, and we sat at the counters, and we closed the counters, the two of us, so we walked back on Fifth Avenue, and when we got to McLevin's, she said, come, I see an empty bar stool there next to Paul Prade. He was a white exchange student at Fisk University. However, I knew people at Fisk. My husband for 60 years mm. was a student at Fisk. And he and King Holland graduated in 61 in the same class. Uh, I um, dated him 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. We were a high school sweetheart. Okay. So she sent me beside Paul and told Paul, please, this is Frankie's first day. Take care of her. Were you and, nervous at all? No, not really. Um, we had a strong neighborhood, so that I... I didn't realize how dangerous it was until he was explaining to me about uh, the city movements, and I had my left arm on the counter and looking at Paul on the right, and a white lady came, and I felt my arm burning, and she was putting a cigarette out she put her cigarette out on your arm i can you're showing me the scar right now 
Yes. So I looked at her. She looked back at me. I looked at my arm. And she didn't do anything. She just held it there until it was out. So I'm only 19. Mm -hmm. And in South Nashville, as a little girl, we would get in fights, you know. Yes. So I took my right hand, balled up my fist, and I said, well, this is my first day on the city, and, and this is going to be my last day because I'm getting ready to okay. knock her out. Yes. I so as I was turning, mm -hmm. Reverend Kelly Miller-Smith kind of got in front of her and was telling me with his hand, Please don't. No, don't do it. So I kept looking at him. And so I calmed myself down. And as I was calming myself down, she was lighting her matches and pulled my poncho back and threw her matches down my back. And Paul grabbed my poncho that had a big hole in it because it burned my poncho. And they took us out. Hmm. I want to I want to go back to this white woman who approached you when you got off the bus after practicing for the dance for the tack team. You come to this. She she grabs you. She asks you to walk with her and she says you're going to get on the spot training. But when you sat down at that first counter, I understand that this woman was served and you weren't. Can you tell me a little bit more about that experience? Yes, I understood then why she had to take me to King Sloan with her. It's because Diane could pass for white. So you're talking about Diane Nash. Diane Nash. Mm -hmm. Diane Nash could pass for white. So when we both went into King Sloan, we sat at the counters, and the waitress didn't even look at me. She just came to Diane and said, what would you like? So Diane said, a cup of coffee. She went back to her station, started pouring the coffee, and when she came back, Diane was turned toward me, explaining to me about the city-ins and telling me about racism, and uh, it was a part of uh, unjust educational system, unjust political system. She was talking to me on those terms. So the lady said, what are you doing talking to that nigger? And Diane said, she isn't a nigger, she's a Negro. At that time, we were not using Afro-American. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, yes, she is. Don't you understand? When the sun goes down, they have a tail that comes out. Oh, wow. Diane said, she's not a nigger, she's a Negro. So am I. That's when she closed the whole counter. All right, I want to go back for a second. She said that African-Americans had tails. What was your reaction to that? Well, I thought that was bizarre, but in 1971, I started teaching in Metro, and one of my little white first graders would get behind me, and I thought she was just making fun and one day I said, I'm going to see what she's doing. So I turned around, and I grabbed her, and I said, what are you doing? And she said, I can't tell you, 
So I told the teacher, you, I was a physical education teacher. I said, take the other kids on. And I said, now you're going to tell me what's happening. She said, Mrs. Henry, I love you, but, little white girl, but my mommy and my granny told me that when Negroes go to bed and when the sun goes down, y'all have a tail that come out. So I wanted to see where that knot was. Now, mm. this was in 1971. It it didn't die down in, in 1960. So, King, as, as you look back on that day, that moment in 1960, when you made the choice to take a risk and sit down at the Woolworth lunch counter, what did that moment mean to you? It's a very uh, monumental moment. Uh, it, uh, the movement uh, was a very important uh, marker for uh, the, the civil rights of, of uh, not just Nashville, but for the city. Uh, one of the things uh, that uh, we have to remember is that uh, as their small uh, achievements uh, can make a difference. And the sit-in movement in Nashville uh, was was inspirational, eventually for the country, uh, and uh, uh, the support that the uh, Nashville community provided, uh, and the training uh, that was involved. Everyone in uh, the city had a part to play. Those people, like Frankie, and many others, when we would come through the city or uh, come up, walk up Fifth Avenue two by two, and there were crowds of uh, uh, whites jeering at us. It was like walking into the stadium, uh, football stadium, uh, mm -hmm. and hearing the cheers of, of people. Uh, but there were many people uh, who said they could not practice nonviolent. Uh, nonviolence, but the, their role was to not get involved and to react to the crowd. Uh, so it made a big difference uh, for the movement and for the city. After the break, we'll continue our conversation about the sit-ins movement in Nashville and see how it shaped the course of history for our city and beyond. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Alona, and this is Nashville. The sit-ins movement of the 1960s was an effort led by Nashville college students to end segregation in our city. These students were harassed, beaten, arrested, and expelled from school. Before the break, we heard firsthand experiences from two of the students who participated in those first sit-ins. Now, I would like to introduce a student who took part in the second wave, Professor Gloria McKissick. Thank you for being here, and welcome back to This is Nashville. So, oh, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. It's so good to have you back. Tell me, how did you get involved with the movement? Oh, boy. 
1960, I was actually a high school student. I'm from Detroit, Michigan, so my background was quite a bit different growing up uh, middle class in uh, such a progressive city as Detroit was back then. And uh, in fact, I was uh, so removed from what was going on in the South. It was only what we watched on television, the news. Mm -hmm. And I remember so clearly watching, for example, what was happening in Birmingham and the young people being attacked by dogs and water hoses and watching that with my father, they had already decided I would be coming to A&I to attend school. Like so many middle-class blacks said, they sent their children to mm-hmm. historic black colleges. And um, I was just looking at him in amazement because I wasn't exposed to things like that. I went to an integrated school, lived in an integrated neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. And I wasn't totally aware of all the things that I couldn't do as an African-American. I was very fortunate in that. Mm -hmm. And my dad looked at me and he said, I'm sending you down there to get an education. He said, don't you get involved in what's going on. Now, my father was a political activist, but I was his daughter. Mm -hmm. If I was his son, he may have had a different attitude. And I don't know what he saw in me that I didn't see in myself, but my reaction was, why would I do that? Why do I want to get in front of dogs and water holes? (laughs) I don't think so, Daddy. Anyway, off Hmm. to school uh, uh, I I came, and I remember just being almost like cultural shock in what I saw in in the South, the segregation signs, the racism was everywhere, and a big billboards, you know, with little pickaninnies, Mm -hmm. and I never saw things like that before. And so, uh, so hmm. you come down to school, you're a freshman. Yes. And against your father's wishes. Yes. You decide to get involved. What was that tipping point? Uh, I was in the student union and the uh, Freedom Riders had been expelled. Hmm. And they were going, Freddie Leonard and some of those people who later will get their honorary doctorates for being uh, in the city and were going around the student union and they were trying to get young people to join in the city. And the second wave, Wood, Woolworths was open, but there were all these other venues that were segregated. And of course, students did not want to get involved, not at A&I, because you'd get expelled. And they came around to our table and uh, I, you know, said, no, I don't think so. I don't want to, you know, dogs. And, you know, they said, oh, no, they don't have that in Nashville. It's not violent like that. We'll show you what to do. And they just made me feel that I could do this. I could do this. And it was the right thing to do. I think it was kind of in my DNA, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. to, and I, I didn't know how I would respond. Sometimes you don't know until you get put in, in the moment. But I have my great-grandfather who was lynched in Mississippi for standing up against the whites when he would not sell, give up his property. So I said, it's in my DNA. We're fighters. 
and I joined them. We went downtown to First Baptist Church, and I received very little training. Everyone was not exposed like King. I had that one day to get it together and make up my mind whether or not I could, you know, put up with what might occur. And I still wasn't sure how I would react. And we went down to Wilson Quick, and Kelly Miller Smith and others were helping us, telling us what to do. But I didn't even know who those people were at the time. And we went into the restaurant. They had the long counter. We went to the back, long story short, one by one. They dragged us out of there and threw us on Church Street. And this is a photo of my very first city. And and that's John Lewis leading us and the Freedom Riders. Mm -hmm. And I got frightened. That's when I I got a little frightened because I was about the only one left in there. And I said, oh, they might make a a real example out of me. But I, you know, the busboys grabbed me. I did what they told me to do, just become lax, don't resist. They took me and dragged me out down that long aisle. There was a crowd that had gathered outside. I didn't know what was going on. And there was a white lady sitting at the counter. When we would go into places, they'd soap up, throw the food away, soap up the windows, Mm. close close down the place. And I guess she was one of the waitresses. And when I I drew a picture of this when I went home that evening, I still have my sketch of what happened to me that day. And she looked down at me and she said, don't hurt the little nigger. Now, I wasn't used to anybody calling me Mm -hmm. by that name. And they kicked open the door and threw me out like a sack of potatoes. I think that was the moment that I realized that I was going to be a part of this. No one should have to undergo that kind of treatment. Absolutely not. Now, fellow sit-in participants Frankie Henry and King Hollins are still with us. You know, Frankie, you spent some time in jail for participating in yes. the sit-ins. Can you can you briefly tell us what that was like? Well, we called them the paddy wagon, and they just pushed us in there like we were just a bunch of animals. Mm. Uh, my tap shoes were around my neck and my arm was this place. And when we got to jail downtown, they fingerprinted us, took our mug shots, took us up to our cells. And while we were there, they had the commode in the middle of the floor and the cops would never leave the bars. So we would have to make a backward circle Mm. around the commode have privacy. Mm -hmm. They had the bunk beds, about two or three abreast, with air vents in the beds so the mattresses could breathe. However, they didn't give us any mattresses, no sheets, no pillowcases, no pillows. It was 29, 30, 35 degrees. Uh, We would take our compacts and open them up and put them between the bars and slant them over so we can see King Holland and and John Lewis in the next cell. Mm -hmm. 
It snowed some of the days we were in there, and they had to go out on snow. John Lewis and, and King Holland, all the guys had to go out on snow details. They fed us. Show me your cup. They fed us out of... Those tin cups. Everything was in this tin cup. The potato soup, the bread, the big spoon twice a day. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour with Professor Gloria McKissick, King Holland, and Frankie Henry about the lunch counter sit-ins of the Civil Rights Movement. So Woolworths was desegregated about three months after the sit-in started in February 1960. Professor McKissick, how did the city change after that? Actually, from my viewpoint, it didn't change that much because it was just Woolworths that opened up their counters and all these other places from A to Z in Nashville remained segregated. And that's where the second flow of demonstrators uh, came in like myself. And every weekend we were downtown you know, and we would just go from place to place and close them down. And uh, the economics of that activity did more probably to close, open up Nashville than anything because they would lose customers. Mm. And so uh, the city gradually changed, but uh, and the focus of the movement began to change from lunch counters to voter registration and other things uh, that needed to be uh, adjusted for equality, you know. And uh, people moved on, and actually uh, new people began to take over that didn't have the training that King had, and you had people on the scene like Stokey Carmichael and others who were projecting a whole different point of, of, of view, and it wasn't nonviolence. And uh, people like John Lewis, who was really our leader, he became president of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Those people moved on, and the new people stepped in, and so I gradually begin to see more violence coming in when King would march and demonstrate. Mm. You know, uh, sometimes violence would break out, but it wasn't the the movement people. It were it was other people who had a different philosophy about how things should change and things were not changing fast enough. Mm-hmm. Now. We know the black history is American history, yet we have states like Florida and here in Tennessee, there are arguments over like what history is to be taught to future generations. And it's a history that could erase or distort contributions and sacrifices that you all made for a better society. As an educator, a lifelong educator, Professor McKissick, how does that make you feel? Uh, I'm just deplored by the changes that I see people uh, trying to take in education. I decided because of the movement uh, to become a history professor, and I wanted to teach the truth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked on textbook committees to make sure that when they adopted books, you know, that we were included and not just a picture and a caption, but part of the narrative, not just... uh, African-Americans, but women and and other minority groups uh, 
worked on the desegregation plan for uh, metro schools uh, and uh, curriculum design, helped design a couple curriculums. In fact, I worked with Coretta Scott King in Atlanta. I was selected uh, along with maybe half of, well, they tried to get a teacher from every uh, state, and we worked on a national curriculum guide that would teach uh, Martin Luther King's philosophy of nonviolence and the steps to conflict resolution. When people hadn't even heard of that, I was teaching that in my classroom. Mm. And, I mean, it just became a part of my lifelong commitment. And so it just makes me feel like all my work and all my effort, not just me, but other educators, is just going down the drain and we need to stand up. You know, we sat down so we could stand up and now people are trying to run over us and just uh, eliminate our history. And, it, and it's, so, it's so important, like trying to change the name of John Lewis Way. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, it, it it disturbs me quite a bit, and I guess I'm going to have to get out my old protest sign and <laughs> and begin to march and protest again because I, I just don't want to see that those things happen. It's so important. You don't know where you are today, not unless you look back mm. and see the steps and progress that people have made so you know how to react to things today and how, and you know how to move forward. Yes, ma'am. Frankie, you know, as an educator yourself, lifelong educator, tell me, what do you think about this effort to erase the history and the contributions of African-Americans in our country? Well, like when you're confronted with a lot of adversities in life that I've been confronted with, I just look back on even being a physical education teacher, the sitting movement just changed my philosophy of life. When I got into Mm. the school system and I got into physical education, 36 years I was head of the Black History Program. I had it every year. My students had to research. I even made up a song about the city. I taught K through 4. And they would sit and cross their legs, and I let them do a pat, and I said, repeat after me. And they would repeat after me, and I said, let's go on the Freedom March. Let's go on the Freedom March. Okay. Okay. Let's go. Let's go. Walking (laughs) into downtown. Walking into downtown. Looking for some justice. Looking for some justice. What did we get? What did we get? Hecklers. Hecklers. <laughs> Shouting out. Shouting out. Ugly words. Ugly words. What did we do? What did we do? Lock arms. Lock arms. March. March. Sing. Sing. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. Sitting at the counter. Sitting at the counter. Waiting for some service. Waiting for some service. What do we get? What do we get? Hitting. Hitting. Spitting. Spitting. 
turning, turning, burning, burning. They took us to jail. They took us to jail. The stories we can tell. The stories we can tell. Mugshot fingerprints. Mugshot fingerprints. They tried us one by one. They tried us one by one. We went through till all was done. We went through till all was done. My K through four knew about the cities. And this was from a physical education teacher. Professor Gloria McKissick, King Hollins, and Frankie Henry first joined us back in February to reflect on their part in Nashville's sit-ins movement. We produced this special hour-long episode from the time we spent continuing to talk with them behind the scenes after our live show. Thank you for listening. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Steve Harouche and Andrea Tutto. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon, and Michaela Elias is our technical director. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Betsy Phillips, Alice Randall, and Dr. LaRotha Williams. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville, find us on Instagram, and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.